Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Hmm. It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Hello and welcome to the opening episode of our special Battleground 44 series with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, as we explained in our curtain raiser last week, the idea is that throughout this year, we're going to follow closely the epic events of 1944 as they unfolded 80 long years ago, examining the battles, the controversies, the themes and the personalities. In our first proper episode, we're going to look at a character who cast a long shadow over the war in the West that year. I'm talking, of course, of the American General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who on the 16th of January arrived in London to take up his post of Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force that was scheduled to land in France one day, as yet to be exactly decided, in late spring. His decisions, his judgments, would be absolutely crucial to the success of this enterprise, which one historian has described as, quotes, the most complex and daring military operation in the history of modern warfare, the culmination of over three years of conception, argument, counter-argument, and the most detailed planning ever undertaken. We'll come on to all that in a moment. But first off, Ike, that's what everyone called him, he never really expected to get this job, did he, Saul? No, he didn't. The job of Supreme Commander for the Normandy Invasion, Operation Overlord, the largest amphibious operation in history, was the most coveted job of the war. It had to go to an American because the US was going to provide roughly twice the amount of men and material for Overlord as the British. But originally, Ike was not the front runner because President Franklin D. Roosevelt, or FDR as he was known, wanted his brilliant army chief of staff, George C. Marshall, to be appointed and Eisenhower to take his place in Washington, D.C. Why? Because Marshall had been the driving force behind an invasion of France since 1942, and Roosevelt knew that unless he was given an opportunity to command armies in battle, his name would be lost to history. But ultimately, as we know, Roosevelt decided against Marshall, and he did so for two reasons. He didn't want to lose him as the most influential member of the Combined Chiefs of Staff, the Anglo-American Brains Trust that controlled Allied strategy, because he feared the British might yet back out of Overlord. Yet his fudge solution to have Marshall as both a theatre commander and a member of the CCS was unacceptable to the British because, in their view, it would make the Combined Chiefs of Staff superfluous. 
So ultimately, Ike was chosen. Yeah, of course, um, Ike did have some experience of uh, Allied Field Command from North Africa, Sicily and Italy. Uh, you know, he arrived there uh, for Operation Torch in the autumn of 1942. Um, but before we talk about that, just tell us a bit more about Ike's background, his early military experience and his character. Um, he was descended on his father's side, at least, from German immigrants. Isn't, isn't that right? Uh, so that is hence, hence the rather unusual name. He was, um, and he wasn't alone, of course, a lot of German immigrants into the US, uh, particularly in the 19th century. But actually, Eisenhower's family had settled in Pennsylvania as long ago as 1732 in the 18th century. His name, by the way, means iron miner in German. Now, Ike himself was not born in the Northeast, but rather in Denison, Texas, in October 1890, as you mentioned, Patrick, in the series opener. But he moved with his family to Abilene, Kansas, when he was two. Now, last year, I spent a couple of days researching in the Presidential Library and Museum at Abilene, and I can confirm that it really was then, and still is now, a one-horse town with a frontier mentality. It was in Abilene that Ike's parents, David and Ida, eked out a modest living and invested all their hopes in their six sons' careers. Both parents were religious fundamentalists, originally Mennonites, though Ida became a Jehovah's Witness, who stressed the simple virtues of honesty, self-reliance, integrity, and fear of God. Now, entering West Point, the United States Military Academy in 1911, Ike became a star halfback on the football team until a bad knee injury kept him on the sidelines. He was a capable but far from outstanding student and graduated halfway up the class of 1915, a class known, by the way, as the class the stars fell on because 59 members eventually became general officers. Once a commissioned officer, however, he goes from strength to strength. He commands the US Army's first tank school and in 1925 passed out first of the command and general staff school at Fort Leavenworth and later served as chief of staff to General Douglas MacArthur in the Philippines in the late 1930s. But of course, you know, in, in um, peacetime, progression up the, up the ladder is pretty slow, isn't it, Saul? And I think that even as late as 1940, Ike's only achieved the rank of relatively low rank of Lieutenant Colonel, or as the Americans would say, Lieutenant Colonel. So how do you explain the kind of, you know, enormous kind of boost to his career that comes thereafter? It's extraordinary to think, isn't it? I mean, within those uh, just those few years of wartime, he goes from lieutenant colonel to four-star general. Uh, he's promoted four-star general at the beginning of 1943. So how did it all come about? Well, in 1940, as you say, he's, command he's a battalion commander of the 1st Battalion of the 15th Infantry. But what brings him to the attention of Marshall, of course, is his organisational ability and limitless capacity for work. We've already mentioned this in the series opener. He'd go to bed late, rise early and work literally seven days a week, smoking incessantly. Now, a few days after Pearl Harbor in December 1941, he's appointed head of the Philippines and Far Eastern section of the War Plans Division in Washington, D.C. This, of course, is under Marshall's aegis. And a few months later, Marshall's impressed with the work he does there, and he makes him chief of the new War Department's Operations Division, which really comes out of War Plans. And it's in the Operations Division that he draws up this document that's known as the Marshall Memorandum. And this is basically the blueprint for what the US is going to do in Western Europe. And it's drawn up particularly to convince the Brits. It included Operation Bolero, the shipment of 30 divisions, 500,000 men, and 3,250 aircraft to Britain 
over the following year as preparation for an invasion of Western Europe. And this is going to be followed by that actual invasion, which was known as Operation Roundup at the time. Of course, eventually this becomes Overlord. And this was supposed to take place in April 1943, an assault on the French coast between La Havre and Boulogne by 48 Allied divisions of 5,800 planes. Uh, the British, interestingly enough, at that point, were going to contribute almost half the planes and a third of the troops. And this leads, of course, in turn to Ike's next two jobs, commanding the U.S. Army's European Theatre of Operations in the spring of 1942. And that summer, his appointment as Allied Commander-in-Chief for Operation Torch, which you've already mentioned, Patrick, the invasion of French North Africa. At that point, he's 50 and the second youngest lieutenant general in the U.S. Army. Yeah. I mean, those were extraordinary years, weren't they? Those, between the, the arrival of the Americans in the spring of 1942 and the eventual invasion uh, just over two years later. But there's a huge amount of wrangling going on all that time, isn't there, between all these various op uh, proposals for a, a cross-channel operation with the Americans pressing very, very hard for it to be sooner rather than later, and the, American, and the British, excuse me, dragging their feet for all sorts of actual practical reasons, um, but having to do this balancing act of pretending to be dead keen on an early invasion of Northern Europe and all the time trying to put the sheet anchor on to prevent the Americans getting carried away. Um, but to get back to Ike, you know, it is, it is a, a huge sort of leap forward, isn't it? A huge leap upwards from Lieutenant Colonel to you know, ultimately commanding the great operation. Um, you look at Monty, for example, you know, in, in 1939, he's already a major general. He's had bitter fighting experience in 1940 in Dunkirk, which is something that we should look at, the, the psychological impact of Dunkirk on the, on the British top brass. Almost everyone was there, and they, it, it scarred them deeply, I think, and this had an effect on their thinking about how and when we were going to go back into Europe. They desperately wanted to do it to get their revenge, but they were also deeply fearful of what would happen if it went wrong. Now, um, he's a very particular type of soldier, isn't he, Ike? You know, he's he's got a lot of presence, but he's got a lot of, you know, real quality as well. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, everyone who meets him, both uh, during the Second World War and after, talk about his charisma. You know, he, when he came into a room, you noticed him. I mean, physically, he's quite a big bloke. He's broad-shouldered, he's uh, six foot, and he was able to dominate any gathering by sheer force of personality. He's almost bald in 1942, but still an exceedingly attractive man uh, with his prominent forehead, broad, expressive face and famous toothy grin. His vivacious Irish-born driver, Kay Summersby, a 33-year-old former clothes model who later claimed to be his lover, wrote of him, brilliant eyes, sandy hair, but not very much of it, a fair, ruddy complexion, a nice face, not conventionally handsome, but strong and, I thought, very American, certainly very appealing. And I succumbed immediately to that grin that was to become so famous. But also, as I mentioned before, he's a man of extraordinary energy who for four years averaged five hours of sleep at night, but he never seemed to reduce his efficiency and capacity for work. And he had, according to his biographer, Stephen E. Ambrose, a sharp, orderly mind. No one ever thought to describe him as an intellectual giant. And outside of his professional field, he was not well-read. He was not liable to come up with brilliant insights, but he had the ability to look at a situation or a problem and analyze it, see what alternatives were available and choose from among them. He was also an excellent people person with firm ideas on justice and fair play, a vital attribute for an allied commander. 
He is noted for his informality, lack of austerity and pleasant manner, read a briefing note for the press in 1942. He is a leader rather than a driver of men. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it, isn't it? Okay, let's talk about his time in North Africa, which, as by a uh, nice coincidence, is the subject of your current book, Tunis Grad. Now, was he effective as a theatre commander there, Saul? Well, the jury's still out, to be truthful. Um, The original intention of Operation Torch was to capture the three Vichy French colonies in Morocco, Algeria and Tunisia before the Axis could intervene. But a planning compromise, mainly due to a lack of air cover, meant the furthest east they were able to land was Algiers in Algeria. The landings, such as they were, were pretty successful, and Ike deserves praise for this. He's heavily involved in the planning, as do his subordinate commanders, including George S. Patton. Patton, by the way, was an old friend of Eisenhower's from the end of the First World War, when, of course, Patton made his name as a tank commander. And as I've already mentioned, Ike was already also involved in armoured warfare, and they both had you know, very strong ideas on, on the use of tanks uh, in, in combat. But it's the next phase of the campaign, the race to capture Tunis in Tunisia before the Germans could land enough troops to prevent them, that was not successful. And by Christmas 1942, Ike's men in Tunisia had suffered a number of setbacks and were on the defensive. This continued on into 1943 with serious setbacks for the Americans at Faid Pass and Kasserim, which of course is the better known uh, battle in February 1943. And it's interesting that Ike himself feared that he might be replaced when the Casablanca conference took place in January 1943. His very close aide, Harry Butcher, said to him, you do realise, sir, that your neck's on the line. So, you know, but for the fact that the campaign actually then does begin to go slightly better, we may not have heard of Ike, of course, of being the supreme commander. But was Ike personally to blame for the setbacks? I don't really think he was. The Axis troops were mostly veterans, led by very capable commanders, Rommel, of course, but also von Arnhem. While Ike's army, particularly the Americans, were inexperienced with inadequate armour and air inferiority, believe it or not, until the start of 1943. Things only really start to improve after the Casablanca Conference when the Combined Chiefs of Staff decide to appoint the British General, Sir Harold Alexander, as Ike's deputy with responsibility for ground operations. And this leaves Ike to concentrate on what he does best, organisation and inter-allied relations, particularly with the French. Now, it's said, isn't it, that one quality a general really has to have is an ability to delegate, um, but to get delegate to the right people to find the right subordinates. What were Ike's appointments like? Well, they weren't always successful. I mean, it's it's a very good question. Uh, In particular, a man called Major General Fredendahl, Lloyd R. Fredendahl, who was the commander of the US Second Corps and uh, a man who presides over these quite serious defeats in February 1943 at Sidi Bouzid and Kasserin. Uh, And he's eventually replaced by the hard-charging Patton some of the anecdotes about Fredendall you couldn't make up. At one point, he sends out a message that reads as follows. Move your command, i.e. the walking boys, pop guns, Baker's outfit, and the outfit, which is the reverse of Baker's outfit, and the big fellows to M, which is due north of where you are now, as soon as possible. I mean, this was uh, absolute madness. Uh, and Fredendall was also guilty uh, of building a bomb-proof headquarters miles from the scene of the action, a place dubbed Speedy Valley, that effectively ensured that he was out of touch with what was going on on the front line when the emergency came in February 1943. He sacked in early March, though Ike hated having to do it. 
But was he disgraced? Not a bit of it. He's later promoted to lieutenant general and given command of the U.S. Second Army in the United States, but fortunately never sees action again. Ike also puts up with the British commander of the First Army, Kenneth Anderson, for far longer than he should have done, in my view. Anderson was an appointee of Brooke and in way over his head. Ike's failure to sack him was complicated, of course, by the need not to upset his allies. Uh, But he learns his lesson. And by the time of the invasion of Sicily in the summer of 1943, he's decided on his best commanders, Bernard Montgomery and George S. Patton, both of whom who perform well, although Patton, as I think we know, is going to go on and give Ike headaches for the next couple of years. As indeed is uh, is Monty, isn't he? Um, but let's talk about the relations with the Brits. You know, this is this is a joint effort. So, the you know communications, the sort of the human relationship between the Brits and the Americans is going to be of profound importance during was already from torch onwards, and it's just going to get more and more significant. Now, this is a, this is an interesting subject, isn't it? I think. Listeners will not be surprised to hear that there's a huge amount of politics involved in all war making, but particularly uh, when there are two or more nations are allied uh, in the war effort. Now, Churchill and Roosevelt, they've got a pretty good uh, relationship. I think Churchill is more enthusiastic about Roosevelt than Roosevelt is about Churchill. And there's a certain amount of sort of display involved um, as much as substance. But there was clearly a massive shared interest in getting the war won. But behind that, nonetheless, there are considerable tensions all along between the British top top brass in all three services, Army, Air Force and Navy, and their US counterparts. Uh, The most fundamental problem, as I mentioned earlier, was that the Brits, for all sorts of reasons, are much more nervous about the great cross-channel invasion than the Americans are. And the Yanks were constantly wondering whether the Brits' hearts were really in it. As I said, almost every senior commander from Brooke, that's the uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff, i.e. the overall uh, military commander, uh, had been at Dunkirk. They're terrified of a sort of another failure. And then, of course, you've got those big personalities that are bound to cause friction on both sides to Ike, both American senior figures and Brits, particularly Montgomery. So uh, Monty in particular is, is in a position to cause a lot of trouble because he's going to be given overall command of the invasion force. We'll be hearing a lot more about Monty, who continues to fascinate everyone after all these years. But how do you think uh, Ike was able to handle these tricky customers? I mean, generally speaking, pretty well. That's why he was in the position. And and let's not also forget, he had a very close relationship with other senior British commanders, uh, people like Cunningham, who commanded the Navy in the Mediterranean and was now top dog in the the Navy back in the UK. But also Tedder, uh, his Air Force chief, and Lee Mallory, who's also going to play an important part in the Overlord campaign. So he did have pretty close, cordial and effective working relationships with a number of commanders. I mean, Montgomery was a different matter entirely, but he'd have been a handful for anyone, including Brooke, of course, who was really uh, the man who brought Montgomery on. So so I think it's important not to suggest that Eisenhower was, you know, at daggers drawn or at loggerheads with, with all the British commanders. But it is also true that Brooke didn't have a huge amount of time for Ike's 
strategic and tactical acumen, which is why he really preferred him in this almost chairman of the board role directing operations, but not actually uh, leading the ground troops in action. That was Monty's job. Interesting enough, on the Patton front, I mean, Patton had disgraced himself in, in Sicily by striking a couple of guys, American soldiers who were clearly suffering from shell shock and effectively calling them cowards. And and I could really save Patton's career uh, and made it possible for him to command an army during Overlord. But this would only be an army uh, that came in after the initial landings. The guy given the first role was, of course, Bradley, and Bradley was, would later be earmarked for army group commander alongside Montgomery. So Patton has been edged out to a certain extent, but there's still a feeling there's room for him as a hard-charging army commander. Okay, that's enough of part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be discussing the key planning decisions for Operation Overlord that Ike had to make after he arrived in Britain in January 1944. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. Welcome back to Battleground 44, the series that looks at the key moments of the war as they unfolded 80 years ago. Before the break, we were discussing Dwight D. Eisenhower's background and character and the reasons he was given the plum appointment of Supreme Commander for Operation Overlord. Now let's find out how we performed after he arrived in the UK 80 years ago this month, after a short period of leave in the United States. Saul, what was the most pressing issue on his to-do list? Well, number one on the list was to fine-tune the planning for Overlord. The heavy lifting up to this point had been done by Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan, the Chief of Staff to the Supreme Allied Commander, or Cossack as he was known, whose staff had been working on the details since early 1943. Morgan had made, along with other crucial people in consultation with the combined chiefs of staff, three key decisions up to this point. To land on three beaches to the east of the Cotentin Peninsula in Normandy on the 1st of May 1944, 
That was the earliest date to satisfy the demand for a landing at dawn at low tide when the anti-landing craft obstacles in the water would be exposed, but also to provide enough moon to assist the airborne landings that were coming in the night before. Two alternative dates were the first and third weeks of June. The beaches have been chosen because they're close enough to British ports and aerial cover, but would not be as heavily defended as those in the Pas de Calais, which is, of course, where Hitler expected the landings to take place. There were good road networks behind the beaches and troops could be supplied from them until the neighbouring port of Cherbourg was captured and put into working order. The final choice of the site for history's greatest invasion, wrote one historian, was made by a process of elimination in which caution was the keynote. Yeah, I mean, there's a long uh, history, isn't there, of of, uh, how we arrived at this point. And uh, one of the standout moments in it was one of the great disasters uh, of the Allied war. That, is, of course, was the attack, uh, the raid on Dieppe, on the uh, channel port of Dieppe in August 1942. Now, this was a kind of preliminary, really, to a sort of in a probing operation in this process of arriving at, you know, where are we going to land, how are we going to land, etc. And there were lessons learned at Dieppe, and one was that uh, you don't attack a defended port, you'd find somewhere open territory, big beaches, and that sort of inevitably moves the geography further and further westwards. Now, um, I could go on a log about Dieppe, I went to this moment, but it was a great object lesson in how not to actually go around a a military operation. Uh, The man at the top of it, Mount Batten, claimed later that it had all been intended to be a disaster all along, more or less. He was saying we were basically finding out how not to do it in order to do it properly. I think this was a sort of post-facto justification, which, as always with the case with Mountbatten, he came out not exactly smelling of roses, but it certainly didn't do his career any harm. Anyway, there's a lot of kind of um, trial and error going on here, and it does end up with this uh, decision that it really has to be not in the most strongly defended area, the Pas-de-Calais, but way over on the uh, Cotentin Peninsula or there or thereabouts uh, between Caen and the base of the peninsula. Initially, there's just going to be an attack around the sort of Caen area, um, but then it's decided, no, you, we need to get a port that we can funnel all the you know, absolutely essential supplies to sustain a, br- a bridgehead immediately. So the priority is to get to Cherbourg as quickly as possible, which means basically two landing areas, one on the east coast of the Cotentin Peninsula and another around the sort of Caen area on the beaches uh, north of Caen. So there we are. We've, they finally decided where the landing is going to take place. But what about the numbers? Initially, the in the Cossack plan, no fault of, uh, of Morgan because he's just been given a job to do with a limited number of resources, and that only... Uh, posits a three-division landing. Now, Ike insists, uh, among others, on boosting those numbers to considerably and increasing the number of beaches. So we've decided uh, on the location, but it's not uh, actually that precise, is it, Saul? You know, there's a question mark about how many beaches are actually going to be insulted. Why did um, Ike want to increase uh, the number? I think the initial number was three. Why did he want to expand the number of beaches? Yeah, I mean, Ike wasn't the only one to consider that uh, the beaches needed to be expanded from three to five because of the obvious point that the more troops you get on the ground on day one, uh, the more chance you've got of the original lodgement succeeding. But various things happen around the time of 
Ike arriving in the UK. And one of them was the landing of a British special operations team on the American beach, Omaha, really to scout it out and to see how uh, how tough the defences were. And they discovered that they were very tough, uh, not only were the Germans already building these very effective gun emplacements, but also the way that this bank rose up from the beach made it very, very difficult for the attackers to get off the beach. So they realised they needed more beaches. But the problem with more beaches is that they need more landing craft, which Ike did not have. So he gets round this by eventually agreeing to postpone the simultaneous landing in southern France, Operation Anvil, as it was known at that point, and later Operation Dragoon, until August, and using the landing craft that had been allocated to the Mediterranean. He also postpones D-Day, as we know, until the first week of June, by which time more landing craft will be available. This allows the original three beaches, Gold, Juno, and Omaha, to be expanded to five, with the addition at either end of Sword and Utah. But he also made one other vital intervention that you could argue was even more crucial to the eventual success of D-Day, and that's to insist on what became known as the transportation plan. You're the expert on air power, Patrick, so uh, why don't you explain this one? Yeah, before we get on to that, Saul, I just had another Monty story. So uh, Monty, all those things that you've just said that uh, you've attributed to Ike, which uh, I think it, it was more of a group effort, but... Monty, in rewriting history, claimed that it was all down to him, basically. He, uh, he claimed that it was, he was the one who'd seen the flaw in the original Cossack plan, the Morgan plan, and insisted on increasing the number of divisions and widening the landing area, etc. I mean, I had to address the subject of Monty's truthfulness when I was writing about Dieppe because he was uh, involved in the initial planning of that. But once again, he was, to put it mildly, pretty economical with the truth. So he managed to avoid all the blame for all the bad decisions, of which there were many, and then heaped uh, all, all the blame on others, which turns out to be his sort of MO in the, when he's uh, writing the history of his exploits. Anyway, to get back to your question, it was really, uh, it came down to a, a real division of opinion, very, very strong and vehement division of opinion about the best use of air power. So it's a sort of battle of uh, between Ike's various air advisors. And you've got Tedder, his very much trusted, much admired mutual admiration society between Tedder and, and Ike, and Lee Mallory, the other RAF guy on one side, and uh, General Carl Spots of the US Strategic Air Forces, that's their bombing force, and Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, commander of RAF Bomber Command, on the other. Now, Ike and his advisors had been convinced by a fascinating figure called Solly Zuckerman, who was a professor of anatomy, who'd been drafted in in the way that Churchill often did, as a special advisor to the war effort. And, you know, any ideas that he came up with were given a, a very respectful hearing. Now, Zuckerman claimed that the foresaw that the strategic air forces could best aid the operation, Operation Overlord, by preparing the battlefield, by knocking out the railway network in France and the Low Countries before D-Day. This is called isolating the battlefield. It's basically preventing the enemy from rushing in the reinforcements and the supplies needed to counter the bridgehead and, from their perspective, hopefully drive it back into the sea. Now, what's the best way of doing this? Spots and Harris disagreed with this view that 
bombing the the communications is going to make a huge amount of difference. They said they prefer to target oil production facilities, and this is the so-called oil plan. They argued very forcefully that this would be much more effective in crippling Germany's ability to wage war in France, basically by depriving them of the fuel, literally and, and metaphorically, to maintain the defence there. Now, you've got two very powerful personalities making this argument. Karl Tui, he was called Spots. He'd flown fighters in World War One. He was a major figure in developing US interwar air power strategy and, uh, and indeed on the practical front as well. Very good at speaking his mind. Bomber Harris, a very bombastic figure who liked throwing his weight around. One of the few military figures, I would say, that Churchill was wary of. We'll be hearing a lot more about him in the next episode. Anyway, Spots and Harris were supported by senior figures like Sir Alan Brooke, the British uh, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, who also doubted the effectiveness of uh, Zuckerman's plan. He also thought, interesting, it would cause too many French casualties. The estimates were uh, predicted were from 80,000 to 160,000 French dead. Well, this turned out to be an overestimate, but French Civilians still paid a high price with about, I think, final total was about 20,000 died in the fighting in Normandy. Well, Ike's response was that basically the transportation plan, i.e. the bombing of the, of the railways, promised some help for Overlord for the obvious reason that it would prevent German reinforcements being rushed to the, to the beachhead, while the oil plan wasn't so predictable. It was kind of pie in the sky, really. And when Spots and Harris refused to give in, he threatened resignation. Oh, he even set a deadline. He, he, he said, um, I'm going to take drastic action and inform the combined chiefs of staff that unless the matter is settled at once, I will request relief from this command, i.e. I'm out of here. Um, it wasn't necessary because Churchill and Roosevelt brought pressure to bear on the unruly bomber chiefs and they agreed to put their forces under Ike's direction. So... The transportation plan was, um, you know, was pretty devastating. They started a endless, virtually daily attacks on railway targets in France and Belgium from May onwards. This is, and by the time D-Day comes along, they've they've dropped seventy six thousand tons of bombs, destroying rail centres, bridges, lines, etc. And of course, you know, rail traffic just drops away dramatically. The plan was definitely much more effective, in my view, than the oil plan. As a one historian, Gordon Harrison, said, the, as to the general effectiveness of the bombs, both tactical and strategic, there can be no doubt that it worked. Um, you've just got to read about it in the memoirs. You know, I've just been reading and researching my book on uh, the liberation of Paris and just uh, incidentally read these stories, uh, the memoirs of various Germans involved. There. When they're recalled to Germany for one reason or another, you know, they have to go by road because the railways are absolutely in ruins. So I suppose that all this begs the question, Patrick, was Ike's appointment a good one? What, what's your feeling about that? Yeah, I mean, um, it might not have seemed so immediately at the time, but I think uh, he was absolutely the right man for the job. Something we ought to remember, actually, that was uh, Brooke himself was considered at one point for the post. Um, I think that would have been a very bad move. I think it was absolutely had to be an American. The Americans were providing the troops, they were providing most of the material. Of course, the Brits were providing a fair chunk, but, you know, they were in the lead role uh, in all departments, the Americans. Brooke himself, his personality, I think, would have uh, would have been unsuited to this job. He was quite abrasive, as you, as you mentioned before, Saul. 
And the Yanks didn't really take kindly to his rather highfalutin manner, though he did uh, tone it down in time. And I think just looking at IQ, he had the perfect human qualifications. Alliance warfare needs a diplomat more than a fighting soldier, I think, at the top. And he was brilliant at that. You know, he, he could flatter. He was good at befriending people. He could cajole without ever bullying. He had a very sound appreciation of the big picture, which was, I think, in the circumstances, more valuable than the kind of strokes of brilliance that a general like Patton would bring to the situation. But ultimately, you know, he was a decent guy who embodied the values the Allies were fighting for. He was Ike, you know, he was a recognizable character whose soldiers of all the nations that were about to embark on this great adventure could have confidence in. So, yeah, I think we were lucky to have the right man in the right job at the right time. What about you, Saul? Yeah, totally agree. I mean, we, we promised to indulge in a little bit of counterfactual, uh, and it, it's interesting to consider. I mean, you mentioned Brooke Marshall was a, was a possibility. Both of those, whether they would have done as good a job as, as Eisenhower, I doubt it for, for lots and lots of different reasons. But also, in both cases, they would have been lost to the combined chiefs of staff, where they actually did a very good job. I mean, Brooke famously <laughs> was brilliant at, at controlling Churchill. You needed someone. I mean, yes, he was tough. Yes, he was outspoken, but he was also very firm and clever at handling Churchill. And I don't think uh, we could have lost him to that role. And on the other hand, of course, you know, the question of did he make the right choices of commanders under him? I think generally speaking, he did. His experience in North Africa was crucial. He he had seen who'd done a good job out there and who hadn't. I mentioned Anderson before. Anderson, after the uh, North African campaign, is never really employed again in, in active service, which says it all, I think. And and he writes a complaining letter to Eisenhower saying, I thought you were, you know, I thought you you thought I'd done a good job. I mean, Ike was just too nice to actually write what he was really thinking, which is, as I've already said, um, Anderson ultimately got in over his head. Anderson's real problem is that he used to micromanage everything. And of course, as theatre commander, you need to be able to see the big picture. So generally speaking, he did get the big calls right. Bradley was uh, a better group commander than Patton would have been. Uh, Monty, of course, was the best of his generation. The only person I can think of, Patrick, who could have played a key role if he'd been available and if he'd been brought back, would have been, of course, our old friend Slim from the Far East. But that was never going to happen. Slim wasn't senior enough, really, to be considered for that sort of post. But was, did he have the talent to have commanded at that sort of level? Yes, I suspect he probably did. But that aside, Eisenhower was the right decision. An interesting point about Slim, but of course, there aren't that many Slims around. And if you take him away from one place, uh, you leave a big hole, don't you? So, uh, these man management decisions are absolutely crucial in any sort of warfare, but something where the stakes are so high as they are here, then if you get it wrong, there are, there are massive consequences down the line. So, yeah, um, it was great that uh, Ike was such a good judge of men. Okay, we're very pleased to say we've got our first questions on Battleground 44. Um, the first actually is not so much a question, but just a message. And it's very interesting, actually. It's from a man called Oliver Davey. He says he's been listening to the excellent podcast since the Battleground Falklands episodes, and he's looking forward to this one. And as we mentioned in the series opener, uh, we're looking at the impact of the Americans arriving en masse in 1943 to 1944. And Oliver says, you might be interested in my research project, which is, he set up a website called 
www.yanksinbristol.co.uk. And that's been collecting stories from Americans and Bristolians about their experiences of this period and how the two got along with each other. So really interesting social history as well as military history there. We'll have a look at that, Oliver. But if anyone else would like to take a look, then do go to that website. Yeah, that is, Oliver. That's uh, Well, you obviously know a, a hell of a lot about it, but this is all fascinating stuff, isn't it? The interaction between the black GIs who are coming into the country and their fellow countrymen. So as you will well know, in Bristol, there was a famous riot on in July uh, 1944 when a group of uh, black servicemen who were in, in the company of local Bristol lasses were challenged by their own MPs, their own military policemen. Fighting ensued, and indeed one one of the black GIs, I believe, was killed. This is a very rich subject that we'll be looking at later in the year. Okay, question from Ray Davis. Thank you for such a great podcast, so informative as always. Can I ask how the Chinese did not seem to be involved in war plans with the three powers, especially in the Pacific arena, as I understand they were heavily involved in fighting the Japanese? Well, uh, we'll come on to this, actually, at some point, Ray. But in reality, the Chinese were heavily involved in war plans in the sense that China Shanghai Shek uh, was considered to be a kind of serious player in the war in China against the Japanese. And there's a lot of contact with Shanghai Shek. And in fact, an American general is sent out to China to advise Shanghai Shek. So it's wrong to say they weren't involved in the war plans. Did they figure as prominently, of course, as the three great leaders? No. But as you get closer towards the end of the Second World War, you can see the Chinese looming ever larger, not least because, of course, there's then the question of what's going to happen after the war itself. Okay, we've got a couple more questions, but we're going to save them for next week when we've got more of a post bag. But that's all we have time for today. Do keep sending your questions on either current events or those in 1944 to our new email address, podbattleground at gmail.com. And do join us on Friday for our regular news roundup from Ukraine and elsewhere. And also next Wednesday, when we'll be continuing the Battleground 44 series with a look at the epic attempt by RAF Bomber Command to bring the war to an end with an assault against Berlin. Goodbye. Goodbye.